Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Today's episode is hosted by Mark. He talks to John Strand, owner of Black Hills Information Security, about how his first job in cybersecurity landed him in the middle of one of the largest lawsuits in United States history, how the gates that keep people from getting into cybersecurity have changed over the years, and how malicious hackers will always have a step up on pen testing. Follow the human side of cybersecurity with the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Uh, my name is John Strand. I'm the owner of Black Hills Information Security and Anti-Siphon Security Training. Um, I've been doing computer security for 22 years. Started at um, uh, Accenture or Anderson, Dis Anderson Consulting, however you cut that. Moved on to Northrop Grumman on classified programs and then started my company about, I want to say, 12, 13 years ago now. Nice, man. So, so you've been uh, you've been doing a little while now, right? Like the uh, kind of impetus for you getting into it, I guess. Like, how did you get started? Well, it's funny when, with computer security, you know, especially with younger generations. I'm sure you get this because I'm noticing the gray beard going on. Uh, where everyone's what, what are you asking, trying to say, man? <laughs> nothing, man. I'm just saying I shaved. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, uh, you know, you talk to some of the younger people, like, so did you get a degree to get in this? And it's like, no. Uh, like, what was your degree in? I'm like, political science. And they get really confused because there's this dissonance between what they expect a path to be and what it is. Yeah. So I graduated with a poli-sci degree from the University of Wyoming. And I actually set my resume up on a CD and coded it in HTML and submitted it to Anderson Consulting. And uh, that in the interview got me the job. And they were like, wow, this kid knows how to code, which... <laughs> whatever, right? Um, and then I got dropped into the world's largest class action lawsuit. Um, actually, la largest class action lawsuit in history with the Department of Interior, uh, with Cobell versus Department of Interior for misappropriation of Native American funds for oil and gas resources, uh, which was Wait, just th monstrous. Th this is all at the... Uh the start of your career uh, of sort of like beginning. This is, like literally so literally if we were setting it up in. this would be yeah. this would be the first paragraph of John's career and then no he got dropped into this yeah so um, I started doing help desk stuff and um, because I knew a little bit of hacking I had read Alf 1 smashing the stack for fun and profit and I was Absolute taking classic. Dr. Watson reports you know they'd pop up yep, yep. and you can easily convert those into an exploit um, if you knew what yeah. you were doing and I would show that off uh, at work because I was an a-hole. And um, <laughs> they, uh, they were like, wow, this guy knows computer security, which was weird because when it all started, the um, Department of Interior, Judge Lampert, hired a pen testing firm, um, actually a pen testing group out of Bell Labs, who um, broke into the Department of Interior to see how hard it was to hack into the network and steal Native American funds. The answer to that question is not very hard. Uh, so much so that he actually shut down all internet connectivity for the entirety of the Department of Interior. And uh, I was one of the only people that detected that attack or helped the team detect that attack. Yeah. And um, it was funny because when it happened, one of the managers was like, pulled me aside and he's like, dude, this was you, wasn't it? I'm like, no, this wasn't me. Go, no, 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 this was you, man. You're the only hacker I know, and you're right here, and you help find it. This that's seems really suspicious. That's always the bad spot to be. The only only hacker people know. You tend to get the uh, the finger yeah, point. Yeah, because quick. back then they didn't know how the internet works, right? They right, were like, oh, right. well, it's got to be a proximity thing. Um, and I was briefly fired for a very short period of time yeah. because he was convinced that I was the one that did the hack, and then it. Turns out that Judge Lampert hired a, a pen testing firm to come in and do it. And rumor has it, I don't know if you're familiar with the Sands Institute or Ed Scotus. Yeah, um, Rumor has it 
that Ed Scotus, who became one of the main instructors at the Sands Institute, was the instructor, or uh, was the pen tester that did that. But that's just a that's just a rumor. We don't know for sure. Wink, wink, nudge, I'm nudge. Air quoting for um, audio. Air quoting it. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's what launched me in the middle of that. They were like, oh, you know, some technical things. Uh, now can you? help secure this network that's processing a billion dollars a month. And I'm like, sure. And then that evening I went to the bookstore and got like the hacking exposed books and just started right, reading them right. like mad uh, to try to do that. But no, that, that year was insane. Um, I was, I had full access to a full enterprise environment disconnected from the internet. I could do whatever I wanted, burn the network to the ground and it was okay. I just had to rebuild it because all of the other administrators they spent all their days playing Total Annihilation and video games with each other because we were effectively shut down. And I was getting like my CISSP, GCIH, GCFW, focusing on on kind of learning my craft. And by the way, I totally played video games too, but I can only do that for like an hour or so a day. Um, the rest it, of my time, I was just learning wait, what, the craft. What, uh, what video games would have been would have been in this time frame? So the, the game that we played all the time was Total Annihilation. It was like, oh, it was total, like command okay, and yeah, control yeah. with robots. And they have a new version of it called Beyond All Reason that's free. Um, but no, that's what that's there was tournaments all day long. Gotcha. Like constantly. And I played for like an hour. And and maybe jumping back, like what did you always just kind of have a love for technology or how or how did you kind of get into technology in general? Like everybody so, seems to have some some version of a different story of their, you know, first computer or how you kind of fell <laughs> into it. Like <laughs> Yeah, there's no straight lines to get here, none when you arrive. Yeah. Um, but my parents were kind of, um, I don't want to say like, like jerks about it, but all the other kids in the neighborhood, they were getting Nintendos, right. And maybe, maybe a, with the first Sega, not the Genesis, but I don't know if you remember the first Sega yeah. kids were getting these video game things. And my parents were like, hell no. And, um, I didn't have cable growing up cause you know, poor. And my dad worked on computers all the time, um, working with triad control data systems and, what he gave me for Christmas one year was a computer without a hard drive, without a video card, without a keyboard and half a printer. And he was basically like, there you go, kid, time for you to put it together. And I had to mow <laughs> lawns and do all this stuff to get the CGA video card in place. And then I you know, had to get the hard drive because everything was running off floppies. So yeah. I literally had to build this thing. And I remember mowing lawns and just being angry, just like, I hate my family. <laughs> my dad's such a bad person. <laughs> and the reality was I learned a tremendous amount about computers and uh, just kind of gave me the bug. And, uh, it, it, you know, my, my family was working on computers, not fun computers that I could play video games on, uh, but with computers and installing restaurant equipment and things like that, point of sale terminals, I just was constantly expo exposed to these things. And back then, I mean, you clearly remember, right? Like going yeah. through the 80s and 90s, it was, it was every month it was a new miracle right? You know, yep. the Pink Floyd line, it was a time of magnets and miracles where yep. a new video card came out or a new monitor came out with greater resolution or it was just insane. Yeah. I remember when I, when I first got like a, a 486, 66 megahertz Ooh. and I was like, I'll never need anything else. This has all yeah, the power I need. <laughs> you know, as like a, Did it have as the a turbo teenager. Button? Was, oh, the turbo button. Pushed, yeah. The turbo <laughs> button. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. But that Absolutely. was beautiful, right? Because every time you got a new computer, it was like this evolutionary jump in what you could do with it. Yeah. And that was the same thing with getting online. It seemed like every, you know, six, seven months, like Prodigy or American All America yep. Online or something like that came out with new access, new things. And it was just, it was just magical. And now 
now everyone's like, whenever you're listening to technology news, they're like, Snapchat introduces new emojis. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I just don't care anymore about it. So. <laughs> That's exactly. And those times of like uh, AOL, Prodigy, et cetera, were, were you already kind of dabbling in any like the the security hacking stuff like you know AOL or any any of those things at the time surfacing for you no i i never really got into that scene until like i said elf one's paper okay and then the uh then the uh, format string attacks paper and yeah. i can't remember who wrote that one um which is a much better it's funny format string attacks is a horrible title but it's a really fantastic well-written article right yeah and the elf one smashing the stack for fun and profit amazing title, incredibly dry paper. But right. those were the two things that really got me started in this whole game of like, you know, trying to do exploits and write things like that. Um, so I came in, I think for a lot of people in my generation, I came in a little bit late. I wasn't part of like the cult of dead cow or anything like, you know, anything like that. It was, you know, pretty much computers were networked. Uh, it wasn't really using dial up that much. Uh, okay. By the time that I got into it and started doing some of this stuff in college, really is where I, where I started. And and in the case of the the uh, kind of pen test gone sideways, or however you would characterize it, with the the Department of Interior, was that uh, was there like particular vulnerability or exploit that was uh, used? If if memory serves, yep. Um, the exploit they used to gain access to the Linux system um, was an RPC stat D vulnerability. It's actually a format nice. string exploit. Um, where if you look at it, it looks like a buffer overflow because you got the hexadecimal 90909090090. But they were using the format string vulnerability to write in a no-op sled and then uh, basically doing the overwriting of the instruction pointer um, uh, uh, using a standard format string attack. So that was, and it was interesting, is as I became an instructor for the SANS Institute for a long time, up until I retired recently, um, that was still an exploit that we talked about in the class to articulate RPC stat D vulnerabilities. And, and and would this be the time frame too of like I don't know if you remember, but like a, a groups like uh, ADM for example back in the day had like a a, a decent number of uh, uh, RPC related uh, uh, remote exploits for uh, for Linux and and related. Yep. And, yep. This uh, should be a, a, maybe well, this is one of the leading edge ones. Okay. Um, and then there was a bunch that came on that, and that it's funny that you mentioned that because you know. It's been this cycle in computer security for years that once people start looking at a technology and a handful of vulnerabilities come out, it's like this cattle call and all of the hackers come to that technology. Like Absolutely. you remember with Adobe, Adobe, there was like a yeah. vulnerability every single week that was coming yeah. out and Java was the same thing. Um, and that was very similar back then as it is today. Yeah, no, that's so true. I remember with uh, Adobe, there was kind of one of the big... I don't know, rushes of vulnerability was, you know, everybody was originally doing, you know, file fuzzing related stuff. And then they realized like there's this uh, scripting engine built in and that has a whole mm -hmm. other array of attack surface that people could dive into. I, I was going to say, and a lot of the vulnerabilities that existed in Adobe and PDFs were things in like Flatte Decode, U3D, yeah. that were compression algorithms. So you right. could actually compress your malware and then take advantage of that. Uh, compression and decompression algorithm for buffer overflows and heap overflows. So yep, yeah, man. people just started hitting it and it just was unrelenting for a while. Yep. And so so dealing with something like the the RPC stat D back then, I mean I what did what did you kind of have, I guess, from like a, a a visibility or or trying to even understand what was happening right. from like an attack perspective? All right. So here here's the deal. Um the beautiful thing about RPC stat D is it literally logged when RPC stat D was logging 
it logged the entire freaking attack. Like you saw the actual no op sled, you saw where it was actually, you know, um, using like percent X, percent D, percent N um, to write a number of decimals to write some garbage. You, you saw it all. It was yeah. right there in the logs. And I remember whenever they were talking to me about, um, Edmundo was the, was the manager that originally hired me. Um, and he was like, so you think you could do the security thing? And mind you, by the time they had talked to me, I'd been up all night at like Barnes and Noble reading hacker books. So I'm like, I yeah. got this, right? <laughs> you know, I got this, I know what hacks look like and the hacks are always going to end up in the logs, right? So I, I had this vision right. that I would be able to review the logs and be like, yeah, you can just find a hack. You just go to the logs, bar log messages. There it is. How hard is this? And everybody was impressed by that. They're like, well, this kid really knows what he's talking about. And then I got to Windows and Windows logs. And oh my gosh, uh, that was, a, you know, Windows didn't give you the level of fidelity. And even most yeah. exploits don't give you that level of fidelity today. They just don't. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so starting with those assumptions at the beginning of my career um, was just something that, you know, I, I think there was a lot of hubris. And, I, and granted, things weren't as complex as they are today. But seriously, if I would have known like just how complicated it was, I would have been white knuckled in fear and ran screaming. Um, instead, there was just no one around. There weren't a lot of computer security experts. In fact, yep. I remember when I was working at Accenture, we were running Lotus Notes, and I started up one of the coys for the West Coast for computer security. Um, one of the guys, his last name was Black. I can't remember his first name, but he set it up as well. And that was it. There were no like super experts in the field at that time. It was just yep. a bunch of hobby hackers doing their best to try to secure things. Yeah, and so much just like the um, word of mouth. And I, I mean, it's almost the reverse of today where I find sometimes when people are starting in security, there's so much information that, that, that you can kind of go really broad and like learn a lot of things on the surface, but it, it uh, it's harder to kind of force oh. yourself to kind of go deep at some level. Uh, well, and the other thing a, about that, that I think is interesting is if you came into this field and you were like, okay, so how am I going to get started? The news cycles are all about the hack du jour, right? The new exploit that's out there, side channel attacks and all these different things. And it's all motherhood and apple pie, right? And it, it's, it's a tremendous amount of like fundamentals. And uh, we actually, during COVID, because, uh, you know, we thought we were all going to go out of business and all of the scary stuff. We actually started up some training because there were so many people that were unemployed and it was uh, it was just pay what you can training module. Um, so it was like, hey, I'm going to give two days of training. If you can pay me 25 bucks. Awesome. If you can't pay anything, here's a discount code for zero, you know, all the way up to like four hundred and ninety five dollars. And that first time that we did that training, we had seven thousand people show up. And it was all just core fundamental, like the top 11 things you got to know in computer security to try to secure your environment without actually getting sidetracked by all of these exploit de jures. It's like, you know, if you can enable internet allow listing, if you can enable um, application allow listing by directory, if you can, you know, run a good EDR, run network intrusion detection, and also network forensics, like all of the standard things in two days, just all killer, no filler. That's awesome. And the demand just blew the doors out of it. And uh, we still are running that training today through anti-siphon. And uh, we now have three classes, like core SOC skills, intro to security, and then cyber deception. And we're still getting about a thousand students every time we run those classes just to get those fundamentals in place. Because I didn't have that. And if yeah. we can help people get that as a, like remove that barrier of entry, so much the better. And, and, and 
when you kind of came to that, like the, the pay-as-you-go training, which I thought was awesome when you did that, like, I mean, I, I, I guess just like, tell me more. Was it just like you had the, the epiphany one day or kind of like what, what led you to that? And obviously it's been, you know, successful for kind of all involved in the sense of like being able to get that knowledge out there well, and be helpful in that way is fantastic. Well, if you look at training in the security industry, it, it tends to be very expensive. And some of the training that's in this industry, like if you're looking at SANS, that's the best training in the world, right? But that's seven to $8,000 per person. And Black Hat, I think, is up in that same price range, right? So what that creates is this massive kind of gate to the industry for people to get involved because it gets into this catch-22, right? You need to have these certifications to get the job that will pay you to get the certifications so that you can get the job. So if you're trying to come at this industry and you're trying to come at it, even coming from a college degree is very, very difficult um, to get those core skills just to get your foot in the door, just to get through that gate is next to impossible. And for me, we had... Um, I don't know. When we first did it, it was astounding. Like we had, we had single mothers that were working like two jobs just to make ends meet. And we're taking that training like in the weekend and taking the recordings of it and then doing it. And now like I've got like two, three of them, very similar stories and backgrounds that are now working in the industry. Right. Um, we had somebody that, uh, one of the guys that works for me now, Keith and another person out of New Zealand, Brian, um, they both worked in the trucking and shipping industry. And they came across our training and the things that they were doing. They just got into it and they're on a discord server. And now they're like hunting down hackers on, on networks and hunting down network, net, hackers on systems. So I realized that I had a skill in the fact that I've been teaching for like 15 years. Right. Yeah. And everyone's talking about this whole skills gap, the skills gap, the skills gap, the skills gap. And I'm in my basement. I, you know, I'm doing BHIS black Hills information security does fine. I don't, it's fine. So let's see if we can help uh, people. I mean, and it's I, I, fantastic. I'll, I'll even just throw in the uh, direct plug. If you guys need anything <laughs> related to the no. services you guys are, you guys are fantastic. Um, yeah. uh, super well regarded. And um, Appreciate it. yeah, I can't say enough. And, and from folks I know that have done work with you guys, I, I always hear the same. So Appreciate it. Yeah. And, and you know, it didn't want to talk too much about that. But, but yeah, like I said, the education, um, I mean, budgets are tight, man. And you know, is I've had it? companies that have paid nothing and that's cool. I don't care. It's yeah. awesome. As long as we're getting some cool people, we're building more friends in the industry and that's what we want. Yeah, man. And is there anything that informs you? Like, I, I guess, you know, when I think about like getting started in, in hacking and security, there, there was so much open info. I mean, it was all open information at, at some level yep. and, and there started to be, you know, a variety of different, you know, different good books at the time. Kind of like you mentioned, like you could go to the, uh, the Barnes and Noble, uh, store shelf <laughs> and actually, and you could still get some stuff today, but a little different. And, yep. um, but, but I always have this, uh, um, this kind of like want and, and you're very much like living it with the, uh, you know, uh, pay what you can training, et cetera. It's like, uh, is there something kind of given back, like knowing, you know, kind of where you started and, and essentially that it was more accessible and it was kind of, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's a fair assessment. Was that, was the gate kind of less of a gate when you got started? Um, or um, was no. it already kind of there to an extent? Oh, I'm going to say yes and no. Um, I'm, I'm going to say, yes, there was a gate because remember a lot of the people in the industry back then were really jerks, right? It was almost this it's right a of passage. Type of gate. That's you, a, yeah, yeah totally a good, that's different a good call gate, out. right? It's a good call out. 
And, and there'd be people that like, you come in and ask a basic question and they'd rip on you for it. Like RTFM. And I remember I was working with a wireless card, trying to get it to work on my Linux system, uh, my notebook. And I was, you know, asking some questions in a forum and somebody's like, all you need to do is just write a driver. And I'm like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of writing a kernel level driver <laughs> to solve this problem? That would have been I mean, so it's great. It's pretty silly that you didn't just think of that. Yeah, I mean, it just didn't go to that. It's like, just let me whip out some C here and let's get this thing. Let's get this party started. Um, and it was very much that attitude. It was not an inclusive attitude. And it's weird because I was part of it, right? Because you thought that that was normal. Yeah. You thought that that was the way the system works. And I remember at ShmooCon a long time ago, Chris Nickerson with Lairs, uh, yep. Dave Kennedy, who was with Trusted at that point, um, and, and Amit and a bunch of us, we all got together in this big room. Paul Zadorian from Security Weekly was there. I can't remember. There's like 10, 15 of us. A couple of bottles of, of liquor. And we basically were like, okay, this has got to stop. And that's kind of where the penetration testing execution standard arose from. Um, but also we kind of started talking to each other about, you know, between the people in that room, we had direct connections to a lot of the people that were kind of caustic and carrying that torch of the old school hacker days of yep. just being mean to each other. And it was, it was a concerted effort. Like there's a bunch of DMs that would go on in the background. If somebody was getting all like negative on somebody for being a noob or anything like that. Yep. And I, and I think that we actually made the industry better. I mean, all of us kind of working in the background on that because now it seems to be better. I mean, you still have flare ups that uh -huh. happen in Twitter because Twitter's horrible, yeah. but it's way better than it was back in like 2008 timeframe. And that's not by accident. Like there's a number of us that came through. We maybe participated in it. We're like, this isn't fun. This isn't bringing out the best in people. How can we suck less? And uh, that, that was kind of what we set out. And seriously, if you're on Twitter and you're like, you were a SANS person, right? And you're going to SANS classes and all of a sudden like John Strand DMs you and is like, dude, you're being a jerk. Stop. That has a hell of an impact on somebody. And um, same thing with like Dave Kennedy, right? Yep. If Dave DMs you and is like, hey, you got to be nicer to people. That's going to have an impact on your behavior. Yeah, it's it's actually interesting that you mentioned that because I, when I think of where I've seen like an evolution of uh, even in a place as crazy as Twitter, where I've seen an evolution of just people treating each other better, uh, sharing better, and everything else. I, I I've always had this weird uh, sphere of I see like you, Dave Kennedy, and a few others, and so it's it's uh, as you said by no accident. Like I, I didn't realize you guys kind of. I got together in that sense of like, this is something I want to change. Like I definitely, uh, and I know for others too, right? Well, like you can, you can visibly like see that, uh, which is Yeah. Cool. And I think a lot of it had that, you know, I had my peeps, like other people had their peeps and their groups and we were all friends. And then our people were fighting with each other. And it's like, when I go to DEF CON or I want to go to, uh, go, go to Black Hat, I don't want to walk around and have beef with people. Right. Um, I want to sit, sit down. I want to hang out, you know, go drinking, go to Batista's hole in the wall and watch Gordy come by with an accordion and play take me out to the ball game. And I don't, I don't want to rip on people. You know, I, I just, it's tiring. And, yeah. uh, and it, it's something that, that makes the community a lot better, I think. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier about the, when you're kind of first learning and, and there was kind of the, the gatekeeping in a, in a different forum. And um, I think we all probably have somebody or an instance maybe we where we remember like the the opposite where like somebody was actually super helpful and i i think of like uh uh i think it was like the the late 90s or so um i was working with uh, a good friend of mine the the late barnaby jack 
and we were trying to oh. figure out some like very early Windows exploitation stuff. And I remember uh, Dildog had just done his um, paper, which I'm going to totally butcher and forget the name, but he, he did his original uh, Windows buffer overflow. It was like the the Tau of the buffer overflow or something like that. Something um, like that. Yeah, it was like the evolution of ELF ones. Where yeah, exactly. It, it, was like, it was like that, more that for Windows. And I remember um, we were stuck on a couple things. And so I just like, you know, sent him an email or a message on wherever. And um, he was just super cool, super like, hey, did you guys think to try this or that? And it was the the total opposite of a lot of experiences I had had up until then, right? Where it was like... Um, uh, the 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 total opposite of the the, the gatekeeping <laughs> that it felt right, and it just it really made it a oppression upon me well, of uh, trying to do similar and um, yeah, never even do better. Probably and, told him how and, much and, that and, helped, but yeah, and that's one of those things you know, getting a sad right, um, yeah. So yeah. you know, and it's the same thing with like Kaminsky. I mean, we're getting to the age now where there's people that we worked with who were awesome and they're no longer with us, and that's getting hard, you know. Um, but no, one of the things I learned over the years um, is a lot of the people that are really skilled, that were some of the best in the industry or are the best in the industry, they tend to be some of the more approachable, nicer people. And I, I think I've realized, you know, after being in this game now for 22 years, that the people who do that, who are kind of jerks about things, who are the gatekeepers, they're incredibly insecure. Right. And it's a protective mechanism. And I've even seen this with employees that have worked for me in the past, where I've realized the reason for them doing that is the more that they attack, their attack is their defense, right? If they're ripping on other people, it's less likely that someone's going to question their technical skills. And that's something that, you know, it, it, for me, it's a warning sign at, at BHIS. And one of my favorite people on the planet is, uh, uh, is, is Egypt. From He was with the Metasploit Project with Rapid7, yep. was with us. And now he's working at another company. We're still really, really good friends. And I remember, like, here's a guy who was right in the belly of Exploit Dev, was right in the belly of the Metasploit Dev that was there when the Metasploit magic was created with HD. And, like, he shows up to BHIS and, like, his first meeting, he's like, look, I know a lot of things about a lot of things. And he goes, look, I don't know much about web app exploitation. I don't know a lot about post-exploitation on a domain, and I would really appreciate it if you all could help me with that. And I'll help you with anything that I know. And that set the stage, right? That set the stage for the rest of the communications with him and internally to the company. And I, I realized that he's always been like that. Like right. anytime I would go to a CCDC competition, he was always helping kids. He was always helping out. Um, and you start to find these people and these are the people that you want to party with. These are the people that you want to hang out with. If somebody's being a jerk and ripping on you because you don't know enough, trust me, deep down inside, they are scared that that you're going to, that somebody will uncover something that they don't know. And that's a really sad state of affairs. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you just got to watch out for it. Like I keep saying, don't party with those people. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Um, and, and so stepping back, how, how did things, I guess, ultimately play out? Uh, with the Department of Interior and 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 the whole uh, the the saga there, right? Like you, you went back, so, you were you know, <laughs> you were doing security dude, to okay. clean up, but like how like there was so, like a, a, a lawsuit involved and oh right? monster lawsuit, yeah, monster lawsuit. So how, I can't how remember. That all kind of end out in <laughs> From my perspective, I left. Okay. Uh, the lawsuit was actually closed out. Um, I want to say five, six, maybe seven years after I left. Like this oh, is wow. big stuff. Wow, right? yeah, like yeah. we're talking 
hundreds of billions of dollars. Like I think it originally it was like a trillion dollar lawsuit, like not small at all. Yeah. But as far as my part of the story goes, um, I was working for Accenture at the time and I think it was making like 39 or 40,000, uh, $45,000 a year. And I'm <clears throat> literally at this point, I'm the lead technical security person. Like I said, for something that's processing a billion dollars. And, um, I remember all I wanted was for Accenture to pay for my master's degree. I wanted to go back to school, get my master's degree. And uh, one of my really good friends, Bob, went to Northrop Grumman out by the golf balls when you're flying into Denver out at Aurora Air Force Base. And uh, he's like, dude, you got to come out here and interview. So I, I went and interviewed with Northrop Grumman. And uh, I remember, I uh, won't give the guy's last name, but Damien. He's an old, like, uh, he's going to beat me up if I say that, but he was an old military, like Marine drill sergeant, bald, straight, no nonsense. And he interviewed me and uh, I went through the interview. And at the end he left and he came back and he's like, Mr. Strand, we don't know what we're going to do with you or where we're going to put you, but we really feel like Northrop Grumman needs you here on this campus. What is your salary requirements? And I remember I asked for something like I think I asked for like 55 because for me and my wife, that was like an infinite amount of money. Yeah. There was no way we could spend that much money back then. I asked for that and he just started laughing and everyone else in the room started laughing. And I'm like, oh God, I've ruined it. I've ruined <laughs> it. I'm never, I'm never going to, oh my God. And he goes, Mr. Strand, we don't even pair janitors that little. Um, and I was just blown away. And uh -huh. uh, they gave me a really good salary bump and uh, that kind of took off. Um, and then I started doing classified stuff for about five years. I still have okay. clearance and I still do stuff with the FBI and, um, and other DOD organizations, but, um, that's my story. That's how it ended. And I went back yeah. to Accenture and I'm like, all I want you all to do is if you just match, like if you just do tuition reimbursement for my master's degree and they said, no, um, they weren't even going to do that. So away I went, um, which went, really man. was a good call in the long run. Yeah. And, so. and, and what, what then led to, uh, eventually starting Black Hills, like, starting a business is, is hard and uh, a ton of work and there's a certain sort of crazy in doing it. Like, um, I, but, you know, you, know it, you clearly have just from an outsider's perspective, I mean, you clearly have a, a ton of passion and um, yeah, I just curious kind of what, what led you to, to, to do that? It, it's equal parts stupid and crazy. You gotta have <laughs> that. Um, so literally at Northrop Grumman, they found out that I was good at writing proposals uh, specifically for the security section. Um, so they wanted me to start traveling on Monday, going to the East Coast or the West Coast, working on proposals for other contracts, and then they would fly me home, quote unquote, on Fridays. And uh, that was too much travel away. And at that exact same time, I was teaching for the Sands Institute. And um, my wife and I decided to take the plunge and um, quit Northrop Grumman and moved to um, back to South Dakota which, you know, is the epicenter of information security in the United States of America. Um, we named the company Black Hills Information Security so that people knew that we were a local firm. And it's funny because in, in the years since 2008, I think I've had like four or five customers in South Dakota, like it, almost no work locally here. Um, but it all came from the fact that I was teaching for the Sands Institute, traveling a lot. And just building up my Rolodex and getting to know people and doing stuff and, you know, one employee at a time, you know, as you know, we never took any VC funding or anything like that. It's always been just, you know, we got, we got too much work, go out and get another tester. And, you know, having that, um, it's a crazy experience. I remember we had something like $25,000 in credit card debt, had no money whatsoever. And, uh, I wrecked my truck, slid off the road with all of my kids and my wife got pinned on a tree um, we all, it was like negative 10 
and we were walking home and that was our only vehicle that we had at that time. And for me, that was probably one of the lowest points of my life, you know, reevaluating like this was a mistake, right? Nothing but huge debt. We don't know how I'm going to feed my family. Don't know how we're going to pay for the mortgage on our house. And I just wrecked the last, you know, the car that we had and, you know, got kids crying and everything. Now, right. I think it was like the day after that, um, I ended up getting a quick turnaround contract. That was enough to get me through another month. And that's the way my wife and and I have lived for a long time is just month to month to month. And, uh, that's service industry. That's the way it works. And, um, but no, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy to do, but you know what? I'm unemployable at this point. Um, I love what I do. It's very self-fulfilling and, uh, you know, I've got a good idea about what my limitations are now. And, and how, how have you seen, cause I think you got started, it was, you said two, 2008? Officially Ish. was 2008. Okay. We actually incorporated a business at that point. Okay. And the only reason why we did is I was still doing some subcontracting for Northrop Grumman and they couldn't gotcha. pay me as an individual. They needed a corporation to do gotcha, so. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and, and how have you seen some of the kind of security service world like change over time? You know, I think of like, I don't know, some of, some of the pen tests back in the day, for example, might've been like, you know, the very, um, starting on the, uh, the external and kind of seeing where you could get now, now these days, there's obviously a lot where it's like, start with some sort of a foothold, knowing that there's mm-hmm. kind of the, assume you will get breached at some level and, and playing out different scenarios. Like, you know, what, what ways have you kind of seen it change over time? Um, this is one of those things where I think it's interesting because it's, it's changed so dramatically, right? So if you look at 2008, um, there was something that was, the phrase was coined by, um, uh, Ed Scotus, um, the, the Pentest industrial complex or Pentest puppy mill industrial complex, where there were firms that were trying to get their testers to do two or three assessments at the same time, right? They're running Nessus and they're outporting the results into a word document. And they're just trying to churn and burn as fast as they possibly can. Yep. And I did some presentations. One of them was recorded at DerbyCon, how not to suck at pen testing. And a lot of it built around the idea of that churn and burn needs to stop. We need to stop just scanning a report and then converting its output into a Word document, putting our logo on it and sending to a customer. That has to end. Right. And we had to get some identification of like what was risk. Like if we have a vulnerability, what is the risk associated with that? If we're reporting on a vulnerability, what was the methodology and the steps that led to you identifying that vulnerability? You know, those were things that we really had to start pushing around. I want to say... 2010, uh, 2011, for some people have been pushing earlier than that. And it was really kind of, there was a sea change in the industry. Even now, a lot of firms that I would used to call like Pentest Puppy Mills, they're now doing incredibly quality work because the bar has been set. This is what it is. And it's been set not just for companies, but also for consumers, for customers. And I was really happy to be part of that with like in Guardian, Secure Ideas, um, Trusted Sec, um, you know, layers and all these different firms. Yeah. And that, that was, there was a lot of presentation saying this stuff sucks. This is not sustainable as an industry. So that was a huge change. The other thing, as you mentioned, starting with assumed compromise assessment, I think the industry has realized recently that the attackers have one thing that your pen testing firm is almost never going to have. And that's time. Um, and what I mean by that is if I go into a pen test, it's usually limited, let's say to four weeks, two months, whatever, but it's very time bound. Yep. And there's a yep. lot that has to be done in that time. So we can't be stealthy and have our scan go over the space of six months. Yep. Uh, we can't do a password spray attack that takes you know a month to complete. We have to do things much faster. And I think that the industry realizing that 
um, and allowing assumed compromise assessments, kind of setting up these other types of services that you can provide is great. Uh, spear phishing is another thing. Um, an attacker is not going to sit down with you and ask about what ruse is okay with your HR department. They're never going to have that conversation with yeah. you. Um, and a lot of tests, they'll have like three or four ruses and that's it. Those are the ones that are approved in the time frame. Whereas an attacker will fail, try again, fail, try again, fail, try again, fail, try again, fail, try again. And that's something I think the industry is now realizing with like purple teaming, uh, assumed compromise assessments. Let's just assume that you can get compromised because that's a safe assumption. Let's start there and work out that way. Yep. Uh, the final thing is the industry uh, right now, two, sorry, two things. One, EDRs are getting really good at protecting the endpoint. And then that brings me to the second thing. A lot of the attacks and methodologies that we're using are moving to the cloud. So that's a big evolution that I think a lot yep. of CTOs need to understand. Yep. And uh, you mentioned earlier, um, I think it was with Northrop maybe, but that uh, you, you kind of got known as being good for the report writing and stuff. Do, do, you, do you enjoy the report writing? I always find in the, uh, um, and obviously it's different for you now, but like, uh, I always found it was interesting at like, you know, pen testing and related groups, there was always that like joke of, uh, you know, whoever got in first didn't have to necessarily write the report. Obviously, it's probably the most important thing in some sense that you're doing yeah, for the customer, yeah. right, is how you actually educate and yeah. communicate. So I'm, I'm being kind of tongue in cheek, but uh, <laughs> yeah, did, 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 you, did you love it or was it like, a, you know, necessary evil of, uh, you know, what you actually need to do to, to best convey things? So, so I look at it for me like running. Um, and I know this is weird. Some people are like, what the hell's wrong uh, with you? Yeah. Um, you wake up in the morning at six o'clock or five 30 and you know, you got to go on a run. You hate it, right? You're like, I don't want to go. It's cold outside. It's uh, the wolves are going to chase me or whatever. <laughs> and then once you're out there and you're doing it after you've gotten to the point where you can do it. Okay. You're like, this is actually okay. Right. You're clearing your head. You're thinking things out and it's actually really good for me. Report writing is a lot like that. Um, you dread it before you do it. And then once you start doing it, it's actually pretty cool. Right. And for me, I don't write reports anymore. You know, we've got, you know, over a hundred employees. So I spend a lot of time reading reports, but I do a lot of writing in the form of writing classes. Like I just wrote a intro to pen testing class or the cyber deception or whatever classes I'm writing. It's the same thing. It's like, I dread doing it. Once I'm in it, it's like, this is fun. Right. And, um, and we have this motto at BHIS that's report as you go. Uh, don't do the whole pen test, get to the end, and then write the report. That report should be like the methodology and the findings should be being built while you're testing. And we really recommend that whether you're an internal testing uh, team. So like if you're a CTO listening to this, absolutely, you should have anything that people need to report. They should report as they go, not at the end. And the reason for that is you get a better product. People find more vulnerabilities because it forces them to think in a different way. Um, as soon as you start clickety clacking and writing something up, you're internalizing what you've seen so far and you're processing it differently in your brain and you're going to come up with more vulnerabilities. And then the final thing is more pr pragmatic. It's the bus test. Um, if we have any testers who have something happens in their family, God forbid, you know, a family member gets sick or they get sick or something like that, then another tester can literally pick up their report, see where they're at and just keep rolling. And that's just that's just something that's worked really well for us. But yeah, it still sucks. But once you're in it, it's not nearly as bad. Gotcha, man. I love I love the uh, the uh, running example. If that that makes perfect sense to me. Um, yeah. But you know, one of the things that comes up sometimes with with these types of services, where you know, there's certain techniques that you build over time, and and sometimes people debate of like, you know, what what techniques are the like 
confidential that you should have versus like you should report. Obviously, you know, it gets very different if you're talking like actual, um, you know, unknown uh, vulns and stuff like that in, in software. H how do you think about that? I mean, there's been some things in the past where it's like, you know, if people are using like actual O'Day in pen test or not, mm -hmm. like, like, how do you think about that? All right. So there's a couple of different things, right? I mean, if you look at this, it can touch on so many different areas, like open source tools. Should we have people releasing open source backdoors? That's a big question in the industry. My take in it, on it is, if this industry cannot handle an open source tool that full source code is available on GitHub with comments, then we're hosed. Like if, if that's the thing, if, if we can, if, if that's our problem right yeah. there. Yeah. And by the way, Florian, uh, Florian uh, from the Sigma Project, I love you dearly. Um, him and I disagree on this, but I respect him immensely. Uh, Richard Bachelik and I um, disagree on this, and I love him immensely. He's one of the people that's just been formidable in my career as well. So there's a lot of people that I respect that have a different point of view, right? But yeah. that's number one. Um, and we're big in a lot of the techniques should be shared so that people are made aware from a defense perspective. I'll give you an example. We released a tool called GCAT. Um, and GCAT is a tool that does all the command and control over Google email. And the reason why it works is most of your firewalls don't check anything that goes to Google. They just yep. don't. And there's a number of good reasons why they don't. Bandwidth, tons of false positives. So it becomes this amazing backdoor. And the Russians used it to attack Ukraine a number of years ago before the war. And they brought down the Ukrainian power grid. They used that technique. And that's scary, right? Yep. When they actually use your tool to do that. But I also go back to, you know, things are only fragile till they break. We need to get these vulnerabilities out there and we need to share them. Now, that's one half of the argument, what you talked about. Yep. The other half of the argument is zero days, right? And I think any firm out there, like if your firm is like, well, we'll use zero days because we're elite, I don't care. Uh, it's not an Easter egg hunt. It doesn't prove anything to an organization if you use a zero day to gain access to their organization. That's number one. Um, number two, it's expensive. If you're running zero days all the time, they're going to get burnt very quickly. And then you got to build more zero days. Um, and that's a really expensive proposition. Yep. So that's a difficult thing. And the final thing when you're looking at zero days is it's not an Easter egg hunt. You're not going to be at the point where we have discovered all the zero days and now everything's secure. It's a dynamic, rapidly changing thing. Now, there are firms, by the way, there are absolutely firms out there that are really, really super sensitive. Government super sensitive, those things like super, super, super sensitive, and they have budgets to support it. And yeah, there is absolutely a market there. You know, people come to BHIS and we might find a zero day and some type of VPN software or CRM or something like that so we can gain access. But the customers have got to be understanding of the fact that you're going to pay for that. That's not cheap. Um, yep. And you can get that full Pato principle, that 80-20 rule, by jumping to an assumed compromise assessment. So my point is, do vulnerability analysis to start. Move up to pen testing, which is vulnerability analysis plus exploitation. Move up to red teaming, which is vulnerability analysis, exploitation, and em emulation of an actual attacker to red team. Move into a black team assessment where it's a red team, but the time box is huge, like eight, nine months where you can run it. After you have done those things, I would also sprinkle in a purple team in there as well 
after you have done those things and you're sleeping well at night and you're comfortable, then you can start talking about your testing firm, about having some custom zero days written, to seeing how your organization actually reacts to them. But go through the steps, work your way up there. And we have firms all the time. They're like, we want you to come in and hack us like a real hacker. I'm like, great. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to find your Facebook page, your wife's Facebook page, your kid's Facebook page. I'm going to friend all of you. I'm going to find out who your kid's soccer team is. I'm going to emulate being your coach. I'm going to send you a schedule change and a PDF to your personal email address. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Okay, no, don't do that. Not that real. Not that real. (laughs) I'm going to clone your SIM to your phone to bypass. No, 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 no. My My phone is private. See, people talk like they want these things, but the reality of it is that some of these things we can't do in the industry due to rules of engagement scope and, oh, laws. We don't want to break those, right? So it changes the way that we do stuff, but we can still do a lot of testing before we actually head up to those things as well. Yeah, no, I, w- well said, man. And uh, yeah, I, I very much am in, in your camp of agreeing on the like, get, get the tools out, get the technique if we can't. Uh, r- respond and survive what is out there that is known. We're like never yeah. going to do well on the uh, whole variety and, and I've of got, unknown you know, things. A, it's a funny story for you yeah. um, about how you got to be very careful. Uh, we, uh, one of our testers, uh, Mike Felch, actually developed um, developed a technique for calendar injection attacks in Google, where you could send a calendar inject and you could completely bypass all filtering, send direct calendar things into people's inboxes. And you could totally send links that way. That wasn't the problem. The problem we also found is you could send a malformed ICS where I, let's say for you, let's say that you're the CEO of a fortune 10 company. You have 150, 200,000, you know, thousand employees. I can send it from you, send it into Google. And then if you touch it, it sends an update to all 150,000 other people. So this is a way that you could send that in and you could send a spear phishing attack and hit an entire organization. But, oh, wait, there's more. You could set it up where it wasn't just one meeting, but, you know, you can set up a meeting that's, you know, every single day at a certain time. You could set it up where a meeting starts like every two minutes and everyone would start getting notifications constantly on their phones and on their computers and it would brick their phones with so many notifications. So this was like a huge vulnerability and no way were we going to release that like absolutely public, here's everything. We coordinated with Google for a long, long time before they actually got that fixed. So you do have to be careful, right? Um, whenever you're coming up with zero days and how you're actually releasing those things and doing coordinated disclosure as well. So it's a balancing act, of absolutely. course. I mean, maybe a segue with what you were saying. It's It's interesting for... You know, if you if you think of the the world kind of going back to the beginning when we were talking, like your start, you know, my start way back uh, before all the gray, and um, you know, you, you, there was a level of, um, um, you know, you could kind of really get in and and understand systems at a level where obviously, given cloud and SaaS and everything today, um, there's a level of you're always going to be kind of surface, and like, how do you think about it in terms of you know, you mentioned uh, the kind of shift, you know. Um, not just the kind of assume breach and related testing, but like, you know, new areas of like cloud testing and cloud related security. Like, like what's that looking like these days? What do you, what do you kind of recommend people should be thinking about uh, in any, any way you want to take that? All right. So there's two separate things, right? A lot of the cloud vendors, if you're looking at like Amazon or Google or any of them, they're perfectly fine with you doing testing, right? Um, on your specific apps that are running in the cloud. 
If you're using a shared app, something like Kinesis, where there's a bunch of people that are using or Amazon Lambda or any of these different things, they get really, really touchy. So that creates two separate things that you need to look at. One, whenever you're standing up cloud infrastructure and cloud services, it's not, it's not this monolithic concept of the cloud, right? You could set up something that has, um, you know, a bunch of open source software that you're deploying in the cloud, or you could be using cloud services, right? And those are two different things. And one of those you can test. So if you're standing up a whole bunch of infrastructure and commercial or open source software stack and you're running it in the cloud, that's it, go test it, test it thoroughly, right? But the other stuff, and this is something that really is a concern for me in the industry, is the stuff that Microsoft and Google and Amazon are like, you can't touch this. Like you cannot go through and start hammering away at Kinesis or Lambda or any of those things without permission from Amazon for darn good reason. Because if you bring that down, then that brings it down for every one of their customers. And that's a monster problem. So how many, the question is, how do we move forward where there's these blind spots that we are not allowed to test? And how do we deal with that? Because just because we haven't heard about vulnerabilities doesn't necessarily mean it's secure. It just means that the actual testing of it is not being tested very regularly. And there's so many ways to misconfigure it. I was doing expert witness work um, for the Capital One hack. Uh, they just had the, uh, the uh, Paige Thompson was found guilty. Um, I went out and did some stuff out in Seattle. But if you look at like how that attack actually worked, utilizing a proxy and then sending a request and that's very complicated and it's very cloud specific. And I don't think a lot of companies are ready. They don't understand what's actually going on. So we got two problems. One, it's getting more and more complicated in the cloud. And then on the other side, there's a whole bunch of things that we can't test as part of doing a security assessment because we can't get permission. So that's scary for me as an individual when I'm looking at all this stuff and looking at the vulnerabilities that we discover when we're doing some cloud-based stuff is, and even if you talk to the people like Amazon and Microsoft and Google, the actual engineers are white knuckled because there's this constant push for new technologies, new features, new services, new technologies, new features, new services. And it's always who's going to be first to market with this type of database? Who's going to be first to market with this AI capability? Who's going to be first to market with this? And we're right back where we were with web testing, where so much of this technology is getting dropped because it's functional, but it may not have been tested at the level of rigor that we would expect it to be. Absolutely, man. And um, I, I know you guys do a fair amount at Black Hills of um, incident response. Like, it, it, do you have uh, opinions if you're able to share of you know incident response yeah. if you've had to do from like a cloud perspective? Are they are they helpful partners uh, or is there still kind of a maturity there? Or you know, I don't want to lead the witness, but Ooh. just curious your opinion Ooh. of incident response and cloud vendors. What's that been like? So so it's interesting. So, all right. So with a lot of cloud vendors, look at your license agreement, what you're paying for and what that gets you access to for logging. Um, Cause we've literally been on incidents and they're like, Oh, sorry, with your license, you don't get access to the logs. If you'd like the logs, you can pay us more money and then you can get the level of fidelity that's required for you to do your job. Um, I'm looking at you, Microsoft. Um, but <clears throat> that is absolutely a concern. Right, Because a lot of people are like, well, we just want email, so we'll get the cheapest licensing that we can get without the protection, without the level of log fidelity that we actually need to be able to do incident response. But 
once again, it's like changing the batteries in your smoke detector. You're like, you grow complacent over time. You're like, ah, it hasn't been a problem. I haven't had a fire. It stopped chirping about six months ago. We're good. It's not a problem until your house is burning down and you're wondering why the hell didn't the smoke detector warn me? So if you're, if you're a CTO listening to this, I strongly encourage you, look at your contracts with your cloud vendors. See what logs are being provided to you and then what logs are possible with different pricing tiers. And I think that that's skeevy. Just for the record, they shouldn't be charging us for additional security features. <laughs> yeah. They should be charging us for functionality features, not the security, like basic here, logging here, of what we need. It should be there. And that's a concern. But you know what? They're going to make money however they can. You know, God bless them. That's the way it works. Yeah, it makes sense, man. Um, so whole whole reason we started this podcast is I think sometimes th- there's a lot of focus in the the industry um, and, and in the kind of media surrounding it of like uh, the the incidents, the breaches, you know, kind of what goes on. But I think sometimes the, the human aspect can be missed. Uh, people like yourself, mm-hmm. you know, telling your story. I mean, you're, you're clearly somebody who's been doing it a while, still very passionate about what you're doing. And I often kind of describe security as like this race without a finish line. There's a lot of checkpoints along the way, but there's always evolving. Uh, while some of the core concepts stay the same over time, technology evolves and, and represents new challenges. What what kind of mm-hmm. has kept you passionate? What what keeps you uh, driving and going forward and, and still in love with what you do? Um, one, it's dynamic. It's interesting. I have ADHD and this scratches that itch. Every single week is something new. Um, and I, and I think that that's fantastic. Also for me, I'm getting to the point where I was there, not necessarily at the beginning, but definitely at the early stages. And I want to make sure that a lot of the things that I've worked on with doing instruction for 15 years and doing podcasts and doing webcasts, doing security weekly, um, that we keep things on the shiny path and we keep things going because there needs to be that consistency. Um, between the gray hairs in the industry and some of the newer people. So they don't make the same mistakes that you and I made. You know, we, we've got to share that. And we've got to be honest about it. Um, and I think that there's some type of, you know, you know, kind of kind of looking forward in the future. And the final thing for me, you know, when you're looking at the future is everyone's talking about how we're down like a million or 1.5 million people in the industry. And that's absolutely a problem. But I know when I'm out and about and I'm traveling, there's a ton of people that have jobs in security and they just are not getting the education that they need and the support that they need. And that's something I can do. And I, and I fundamentally believe that all humanity's problems can be solved with education. And if I can be part of that solution in some small way moving forward, um, I think that's great. And it kind of goes to, um, there was this author I was listening to and he, somebody was asking him about his books and his legacy of his books. And he said, Um, he said the best legacy you can have as an author is to be forgotten, which I think is weird. And his point on that is if you write a book and it's forgotten, it means that those lessons and those narratives and the problems that you encountered are no longer problems and they've been solved. And that means you were successful. And he brought up like Brave New World in 1984 and things like that. And he's like, these books are still necessary. They still have an urgency. They still have a requirement. And as you know, the authors that wrote those books, I mean, they're fantastic books, but wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to worry about Brave New World? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to worry about 1984 and they were just like, you know, they were just some whatever, it doesn't matter anymore. And for me, that's kind of my goal. If I can train enough people to the point where it becomes like this, this wheel. And there's so many cool things going on in YouTube with like Ipsec and John Hammond and the Cyber Mentor and all these people. And if I can help contribute that education like swirl that's happening in the industry to where education is no longer a problem in this industry and that's, you know, kind of forgotten, oh boy, that would be success for me. 
that would be success for me. John, thank you so much, man. It's been an honor having you on today and uh, much appreciate everything that you do in, uh, in our field. Uh, much respect. You bet. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it.